Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask if you would turn your copy of Scripture to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to finish up the chapter today, 7 verse 20 through verse 28. I think if uh, this sermon series had a theme song, it might be that one, He Will Hold Me Fast. The book of Hebrews constantly invites the readers to hold fast to their confession in Christ, to hold fast to Jesus, not to turn away in the temptation to reject uh, the experience of suffering and difficulty and turn away from Christ and go back to the past. There's an invitation to hold on to Jesus. And that is warranted. We need to be reminded of that. Uh, the readers needed to be reminded of that. But the good news is for us that are in Christ... Even if we slip, even if we're faithless, even if we struggle, the Bible promises that Jesus won't let go. He's not going to let go of us as his people. The the whole message of the book of Hebrews is the greatness and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. He is better. He is greater. He is worthy of our prayers, of our acknowledgement of him. Let me illustrate it this way as we begin our sermon today. Many years ago, an indigent philosopher came before the court of Alexander the Great. He needed some funding, he needed some money, and he was invited by the court officials to make a request of Alexander to kind of fund his life and fund his philosophy. He came before the treasurer, Alexander's treasurer, and this gentleman asked for 10,000 pounds. The treasurer kind of balked. I can't believe that you would ask this great a sum from Alexander. But Alexander's statement was quite different. Here's what he said. He replied, Let the money be instantly paid. I am delighted with this philosopher's way of thinking. He has done me a singular honor. By the largeness of his request, he shows the high idea that he has conceived of my wealth and my generosity. Folks, our God is so much greater than sometimes we come before him with in our perspective and our temperament and our attitude. He is far beyond what we can imagine. What we're going to discover in these short verses, these couple of paragraphs as we conclude Hebrews 7, is that Jesus is greater. There are three reasons he's greater that we're going to look at. He is greater beyond anything we can imagine. He invites us to experience his salvation and to know of his ongoing ministry in our lives. So read with me, beginning in verse 20. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death by continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, 
But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Uh, this set of uh, paragraphs follows up on the argument that the writer made earlier in chapter 7. Grateful for Pastor Tad who filled in for me last week. Thank you for your prayers for me as I preached a homecoming ser- service at the church where I grew up. It was kind of an awkward experience, but an experience where we have some, pe- some peace and freedom after, after having, that, uh, having finished that. Uh, but we're going to continue the argument of the writer in chapter 7. He has talked about Jesus being a greater priest because he came from Melchizedek. He's talked about Jesus being greater than the Levitical priesthood. And then the kind of final piece of that argument is Jesus is a greater priest because God said he would be. In other words, God established Jesus' priesthood by an oath. So the first reason why Jesus is greater is this. Jesus is greater because he is a better guarantee of a better covenant. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is someone that God promised. He, he orchestrated and organized the means by which our salvation would be possible. And not only did God say it was going to happen, not just in prophetic utterances. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of prophetic uh, promises in the Old Testament that point to the Messiah coming. God said this is what is going to take place. God doesn't have to make an oath. He, he says something and it's absolutely certain. But what God did here, and this should tremendously encourage us, what God did is he didn't just say Jesus is going to come. And and he didn't just send Jesus as if he was kind of out of thin air. God made an oath. He swore by himself that I am going to send one who's going to come in this line of Melchizedek. He's going to be a priest forever, and he is going to be your Savior. It's an absolute promise that God makes. It's a promise beyond just... God saying, okay, I'm going to do this. It's a promise that comes in the, in the picture of what a covenant is. See, the covenants of the Old Testament, Tad talked about the Noah, Noah's covenant last week. Covenants of the Old Testament are when God makes a promise to a person or to a group of people in the Old Testament. What's fascinating about all those promises, all those covenants that God makes, is God never broke one of them. He never broke the promise or the covenant with Noah or with Moses or with David or with Abraham or any other covenant he made in the Old Testament. He made and established that covenant and he never broke it. Yet the people of God, people he made covenant with, consistently broke those covenants. They didn't keep their word. They didn't keep their law, but God did. God kept his covenant. And beyond him keeping covenant which he did, he said, he swore, he made an oath, I'm going to send Jesus and he's going to actually be a better covenant than the ones I've made for all of these years, all of these hundreds of years in the Old Testament. It's not as if the Old Testament, the Old Covenants, Noah and Moses and David and the covenants God made, it's not as if they were false. Okay, It's not like God's saying, I didn't do good enough here and so I need to do something that is better now. No, God's promise and God's covenant were always right and righteous because they were an establishment of his glory and his provision and his greatness. No, the reason he had to make a better covenant and Jesus had to come to be the guarantor of that better covenant is because the old covenants were insufficient. They were always designed to become eventually obsolete. And really that shows the foreplanning of God. 
God orchestrated all the events of the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple, as the means by which or the place by which people could enter into God's presence. He orchestrated the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the kingly line. He orchestrated all of those things for a period of several thousand years with his people in the Old Testament, always to point them to the fact that they were not sufficient and they were not able to keep, the people were not able to keep those covenants in a sufficient way to bring about salvation. You think about it, they had to bring sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, Day of Atonement after Day of Atonement after Day of Atonement, year after year after year. And what happened? The people consistently broke covenant with God even through all of the system of the Old Testament. So what God did is He fulfilled that in Jesus. He sent Jesus to be the guarantor, the surety, the assurance of something that is better, a covenant that's permanent, a covenant that's once for all, a covenant that will last forever. What do we mean when we think about this terminology, covenant? Well, when I do a wedding ceremony, I officiate a ceremony, I use language like this. This man is covenanting before God and with this woman to be her lawfully wedded husband. And the same thing is true of a wife to her husband. We use covenant language. Why? Because a covenant is more than just a promise. A promise is something that you and I would say, I promise to do this or you promise to do that. And, and, and truthfully, when we make a promise, we ought to keep that promise, right? We, we ought to be truth tellers. But sometimes you and I make promises that we're not able to keep. Sometimes we say, I'll be there and unforeseen circumstances outside of our control keep us from keeping that promise. They cause us to break a promise. A covenant is beyond a promise. It's more than just a legal binding document. A covenant is something that, that, that there's, a, there's a, a specific set of principles or a specific ritual that happens in a covenant acknowledgement where you're saying to one another, I'm not going to break this and you're not going to break this and it is established between us and God. That's the picture of the covenant that God made with us through Jesus. It's more than God just saying, I'm not going to break a promise. It's God establishing it through ritual and pattern. And ultimately through Jesus saying, I'm not going to break covenant with you. And Jesus is the one that is the establishment of that promise. And see, you know, you and I have our word, right? We say we're not going to do this. And when, for example, in a marriage ceremony, a husband makes a vow to his wife and a wife makes a vow to her husband, that is supposed to be established before God permanently. That's what it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way. You know that. Life happens. Sin happens. Disobedience happens. Unforgiveness happens. And, and there are breaks in relationships. It happens in human experience. What God says through Jesus is that Jesus is better than all that. He is the promise God made. And He's not just a verbal promise. It's not just a propositional statement that God makes to us and says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to wipe away your sins. What did God do to say he's going to save us? He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to suffer on a cross. He sent Jesus to take your sins and my sins. He sent Jesus to be a priest on our behalf. He sent Jesus to do what we could not do. It's a clear affirmation that God's promise is essentially better. It's personal. His promise to us is absolutely personal. It's an oath, an oath through Jesus, and it is personal because Jesus suffered to make that covenant happen between us and God. He's the affirmation of God's oath to us. Jesus is God's promise. 
He's greater because he is a better guarantee of a better covenant made with us. We're going to continue that, that concept in chapter 8 as the writer goes on to describe what the new covenant is. I'll give you a second reason why Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater because he is the only Savior who is able to completely save all people anywhere, everywhere. In other words, Jesus is able to save and he's the only one able to save. Notice the way that this... It's described in verse 23. The former priests were many in number. Year after year, year after year, they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's Jesus. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save. That word, save to the uttermost, carries with it uh, the idea of completely and forever. It's a phrase that means not only is Jesus able to save completely, but he's able to save permanently. Because he continues as a priest, his salvation that he offers to us doesn't have have an end date. It doesn't have a, a timeline where it's done and it's finished and so we're no longer saved. No, it's a complete salvation. And it's a complete salvation for all time and for all eternity. These aren't necessarily in your notes, but let me give you three specific things that this means for us that are hearing this invitation to salvation. If Jesus is able to save completely and forever, save to the uttermost, it means this. It means that your past is not greater than Jesus' ability to save you. There's nothing in your past that exceeds the limits of Jesus' ability to wash away. Uh, He is able to save completely and totally with absolute affirmation. Some people think that they've sinned their way out of God's ability to redeem them. The only sin that God will not forgive is the sin of continued unbelief in Jesus. Some of you might be here and you might be guilty of some pretty heinous sins. Some of you here might be murderers or maybe not. But if you're not a murderer like Moses or like David or like uh, Paul, they were all forgiven by God. You might be a murderer in the sense where Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I've heard that it was said, don't commit murder. But I say to you, if you have hate in your heart toward a brother or sister, then you've committed murder against them. We may not be guilty of physical murder, actual murder, but we may be guilty of hate in our heart. Jesus is able to forgive that. He's able to completely cleanse from that. Maybe there are some in the room that are guilty of adultery, breaking covenant with a spouse. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. Because if you've done that, you've as much as committed adultery. Jesus is able to forgive from that. And he's able to forgive all sorts of sins and evils. Maybe you're here and you're caught up in pornography. Or maybe you're here and you're caught up in some kind of hate-filled activity. Maybe you're here and you believe the wrong things. Maybe you've given yourself to a different religious kind of uh, ideology. Jesus is able to save completely and totally from that. He's able to cleanse any sin from your past. There's no sin in your past. He's not able to wash you from. That's who he is. He's able to save you completely from your past sins. That is good news. It means that there's no one in the room. There's no sin you could bring in the room that you could say to God, God, you can't forgive me for for this. It's bigger than your cross. No, that's not the way it works. The way it works is Jesus is able to save completely, forever, for all time. He's able to wash it all away. And so there's no sin that's standing in your way of God forgiving you if you will come 
to God through Jesus. Your past is not greater than Jesus' ability to save. Your pain is not greater than Jesus' ability to save. Some of you are in this room today and you're devastated. You're, you're frustrated. You're broken by circumstances that have happened to you. Not necessarily the sins you've committed. And some of you have had sins committed against you. You've had people lie to you, lie about you. You've had people break fellowship with you. You've had people abuse you. You've had circumstances in life that have happened to you. You've had things in your life that you can't control and you can't fix. You've had devastating circumstances and situations. I just want to remind you, Jesus is able to save completely and forever. And the circumstances that have come upon us, the pains, the challenges, the difficulties, may not be our own sin for Jesus to forgive us from, but they are our own reflection of the broken world in which we live, that Jesus is able to save us completely and forever from. See, the situation of our brokenness and devastation and sorrow and sadness and grief is not a permanent situation for the life of the Christian because Jesus is able to save completely and forever. In the coming weeks on Wednesday nights, we're going to continue our doctrinal study We're finishing up the doctrine of the Holy Spirit this upcoming Wednesday, and then we're going to move into the doctrine of salvation. We're really going to spend the rest of the spring looking at the doctrine of salvation. And, And at the very least, what I want you to grasp today is that the doctrine of salvation means that we've been justified, saved from our past sins, cleansed. We're being sanctified, being made holy, being made into right relationship with God. But one aspect of salvation we need to remember is that we will be glorified. We will be saved in the future. Folks, for those that are in Christ, there's coming a day when the abusive behavior you've received, when the sins that have been done to you, when the brokenness and the devastation and the sadness and the sorrow and all of the things that you've received in your person in this life, there's coming a day when that no longer will define you. When in God or by God through Jesus, that will be wiped away. That will be cleansed. Maybe, maybe. There will be some evidence of those scars in heaven as a part of who we've been. But those scars will be like the scars of Jesus. If they're there in our own kind of being, in our glorified state, they'll be shown to be the aspect of God God cleansing and restoring and making right. I'm here to tell you that your pain is not greater than Jesus' ability to, to cleanse and wash and completely restore you from. Say something else, your pride is not greater than Jesus' ability to save you from. There are a lot of people who think they're too far gone for God to forgive them, but I think there are far more people that think they're good enough where they don't need God to forgive them. The Pharisees and religious leaders were like that. They didn't think they needed God's forgiveness. That's why they rejected Jesus. That's why they didn't follow Christ. Because they didn't think they needed Him. Jesus even used language like this. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners, to save sinners, to bring them to repentance. He came to save those who realized that they're sinful. I think there are lots of people who sit in church pews on Sundays who are in this state of thinking that they're good enough in order to enter the presence of God because they're better than their neighbor. Shoot, they look around the sanctuary and they know what that person did and who that person used to be and how that person acted or maybe how that person acted yesterday. And they think, man, I'm, I'm better than them. I don't, I don't need Jesus. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need to humble myself. I don't need to come to God through Jesus. I don't need that. I'm better than all of these other people. I want to tell you something. That kind of attitude will lead you to eternal separation from God. 
But Jesus is able to save you from that. He's able to show you that you holding on to your sinful pride is what will separate you from God forever. And He's able to forgive and He's able to cleanse. What do I mean by that? Let me illustrate it this way. I came across this, this thought this week. Uh, if you walk out of here today and if the cloud's kind of clear and you stare at the sun in all of its glory, 93 million miles away the sun is, but if you stare at the sun... You're going to damage your eyes, and if you stare at it long enough, you're going to blind yourself. And some people think that they're just going to be able to kind of saunter their way into the presence of God. Just kind of show up in heaven one day and say, God, I did you a favor. I prayed one time when I was such and such years old, and I'm in heaven now. You know, show me where I'm going to live. And that's their mindset about God and heaven and eternity. I just want to tell you, if in this life we can't look at the sun, which is 93 million miles away, and not do damage to our eyes, I promise you the glory and grandeur of God in Jesus Christ, when we step into his presence and eternity, will bring us to a place of humility and absolute submission and surrender. There will be no sauntering into heaven thinking that we're doing God a favor. The only people that will get to God in heaven and experience the forgiveness that God offers are the ones who come to God through Jesus Christ. And that's the qualification, isn't it? God is able to save. Christ is able to save. To the uttermost, anyone and everyone, anywhere and everywhere, no one is excluded. Here's the qualification of those who draw near to God through Jesus Christ. The only way that salvation is possible for the person, the unreached people group that we pray for every month, your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, your child, your grandchild, your, your friend, the only way salvation is possible for that person is if they come to God through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. They can't come to God through their own good works. They can't come to God through the faith of their parents. They can't come to God through rituals and practices. They can't come to God through other religious systems. The only way they can come to God and experience the complete and forever salvation that God promises is if they come to God through Jesus Christ. Tom Schreiner put it this way, thinking about these verses. The main point in verses 23 through 25 is that Jesus is able to save completely those who come into God's presence through him. The Levitical priests can't match this, for they all die. Dead priests can't accomplish salvation. But Jesus' priesthood, on the other hand, never ends. And thus, the saving efficacy of his priesthood is perpetual. Believers can be full of confidence that they are truly entering God's presence, for Jesus, as the ever-living priest, intercedes for them. That's the point of the text. The reason that salvation couldn't happen in the Old Testament is priests came and went. They died and they were done. Their ministry was over. That's not Jesus Notice this, he always lives to make intercession. Jesus is not dead. He's not a dead Savior in heaven. He's a living Savior in heaven, always living to make intercession, continuing his ministry of giving us permission into the presence of God. I'll give you a third reason why Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater because he is the perfect priest. He is the forever intercessor. So who is it that brings about this salvation that's possible? Well, it's Jesus who is perfect in his person. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Indeed, fitting carries with it the idea we need someone like this. In other words, the priests of the Old Testament, the ones who lived and died, verse 27, those who sinned and needed to confess their own sins, those who didn't live forever, that's who 
the priests of the Old Testament were. Jesus isn't like the priests of the Old Testament. He's different than them. He's what we needed. Folks, you don't need a good preacher. You don't need an Old Testament priest. You don't need a good way to God or a good means. You need someone who is perfectly unique and designed and made so that salvation is possible. That's Jesus. We need someone like him. We don't need someone like us. And who is this one? Who, how, is it, how is he? What does he look like? Well, look at the qualifications. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. And he's exalted above the heavens. He's holy. This is the Greek word hosios, not hagios, which is the typical Greek word for holy. It carries with it the idea of covenant holiness. Here's what it means. In the Old Testament, when all these covenants were made between God and Abraham, and God and Moses, God and David... All these covenants. God made a promise that he always kept. Even when Abraham broke his promise, God held Abraham. Even when David broke his promise, God held David. Even when Noah broke the promise, God held Noah. Beautiful affirmation. The reason we needed somebody better is because Abraham, Noah, David couldn't keep the covenant. Nor could any of the other Old Testament saints. Nor could any of the other priests in the Old Testament. They did not have covenantal holiness. Jesus did. Jesus came and he perfectly fulfilled all the law that God had given in the Old Testament. He perfectly fulfilled the sacrificial requirements and expectations. He did what no one else could have done. He's holy. He is the rightful one to stand between you and God and me and God and bring us salvation because he is covenantally holy. Not only that, but he is uh, innocent. He's incorruptible. He's flawless. While you and I were tempted and we sinned, Jesus was tempted and he never sinned. He's absolutely perfect. He's pure. That carries with it the idea of ritual or moral purity. See, the priests in the Old Testament, before they would offer a sacrifice, they had to go through a washing ritual. There's this massive basin outside the tabernacle that was also outside the temple. So the priests would come and they would get ready for their red rituals of sacrifice and worship and they would undress and they would wash themselves and then they would dress in their priestly garments and then they would go about their day's worth of, 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 uh, of worship, leading in worship. They had to be ritually cleansed and pure. That's Jesus but he didn't need to take a shower or a bath. He's absolutely completely pure and holy. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament uh, imagery and cleanliness and holiness, and he's able to represent us. He's morally and ritually pure in and of himself. Not only that, he's separated from sinners. Carries with the idea that he's different from us. He's tempted like us, but he's not like us. He's, in other words, he's separated. He didn't sin. He didn't disobey. He didn't break covenant. He didn't tell a lie. He didn't break a promise. He's absolutely right and righteous in his person, separated from sinners, and he's exalted above the heavens. That's a glorious phrase. It means that he's able to accomplish what he says he can accomplish. He's exalted above the heavens. Not exalted above Wilkes County, North Carolina. Not merely exalted above Jerusalem, Israel. Not merely exalted above Rome, Italy, or Washington, D.C., or Beijing, China. Not exalted merely above Kiev, Ukraine, or above Turkey, where there's been a devastating earthquake. He is exalted above the heavens. Carries with it this idea that Jesus alone is uniquely able to bring about the conversion of sinners and the salvation of people 
anywhere and everywhere, and he has the right and authority to do so. He and his person is able to bring about salvation. And how does he do that? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. That's a beautiful phrase. Glorious phrase. He is our perfect intercessor. What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is an intercessor? The very basic concept is that it implies that he's praying for us. But it means that he meets or interacts with one person in reference to another. So Jesus is in between us and God. Praying, yes, but also doing other work. Dane Ortland, in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, it's referenced in your worship guide. I would commend that book to you to read and deepen your faith. The entire book is worth the chapter that he deals with this text of Scripture. Dane Ortland writes this. He says, The answer is that intercession applies what the atonement has accomplished. Christ's present heavenly intercession on our behalf is a reflection of the fullness and victory and completeness of His earthly work. It's not a reflection of anything lacking in His earthly work. The atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. In the past, Jesus did what He now talks about. In the present, Jesus talks about what He now did. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, Christ turns the Father's eyes to His own righteousness... To avert his gaze from our sins. He reconciles the Father's heart to us. That by his intercession he prepares a way. So that we can have access to the Father. Here's what that means in short. When you and I go before God in just a little bit in prayer. Or you pray in the morning during your devotion time. Or I pray later. And I go to God. It's Jesus is always... That means ongoing. It's regular ministry. It's a still happening ministry. Jesus takes my prayers and he says something like this to the Father. He says, Father, hear Chris's prayers. I know, I know he acted sinfully yesterday. I know he said some things to his sons that he shouldn't have said. He said them in anger and it wasn't right. And I know that that's wrong, but I want you to remind, to remind you, Heavenly Father, that when I died on the cross, I covered all of those sins that Chris sinned prior to conversion and after salvation, I covered all those sins and hear him because you hear me. Hear him because here's my righteousness that I am placing on his behalf. And, and that's what Jesus is doing. And I want you to grasp this, folks. He is doing that for every single follower of him all across the world constantly. We don't get to enter into the presence of God based on how well we did yesterday or how well we're doing this morning. We enter the presence of God, Dr. Mike, because of what Jesus did. And when you go to pray and when I go to pray and when Steve Melton goes to pray before God, it's not like we did good and God hears. There's no level of like a kind of better righteousness on behalf of people in our, in our world or people in our church. That's not the way God hears. He hears because... 2,000 years ago on the cross of Christ, your sins were there and my sins were there. And Jesus applies that work every single moment of our living Christian life. He always lives to make intercession. And by the way, He doesn't sleep. He doesn't take a nap. He doesn't rest from that work. He continues that work of interceding on our behalf. It is a glorious, wonderful truth. Christian, here's what that means. At the very least... It means that we ought to pray to God through Jesus like He is worthy of being prayed to. 
That opening illustration about Alexander the Great. Folks, our prayers ought to be grand and majestic and full of major requests before God. And here's why. Because really, are any of the needs that we think are great, are they really great compared to the saving work of God through Jesus? Do do any of the things that you're praying for, healing from cancer... Conversion of a sinner? Reconciled relationship? Are any of those great in comparison to what Jesus did on the cross to bring about our salvation in the ongoing ministry that Jesus is doing to give us the privilege of prayer? In other words, I'm not not trying to offend you with your perspective on life, but they're small compared to what Jesus has already done. So our prayers to God need to reflect our trust in God's greatness. Because that's what Jesus is doing ongoing. He is continuing to bring us to a place where we can trust him. In fact, that's, the writer of Hebrews is going to go there in chapter 11. He's going to teach us why we can trust and why our dependence on him needs to be great. Because he is great. And he always continually intercedes for us. It's a glorious privilege. Here's what that means for those of you in the room that do not yet know Christ. And there are several of you I know, some children and teenagers, maybe adults, that are here today and you haven't yet trusted Jesus to be your Savior. Maybe it is a sin that's keeping you from faith. Maybe you don't want to repent of that hidden sin that nobody else knows about. Maybe you're not sure you believe in Jesus. Maybe you're not sure of the truth of the gospel. I want to tell you, Jesus came to take your place on a cross so that you could have eternal life. And he offers that if you come to God through him, See, some of us make the mistake of thinking that, that we'll just get to heaven because we live in a good place or because we have nice family or because we have things. The only way we get to heaven is through Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other means. You can't come on your own. You have to come through Christ and through Him alone. And what did He do to bring about that possibility? Folks, He shed His blood. He became our priest. He became our sacrifice. He made an oath and a promise, and He is the very personal application of that promise to us. And He invites us, if you will come to God through me, here's what I'll do. I'll wash your past away. I'll bring you into a relationship with the living God. I will cleanse you and forgive you. I will redeem you forever. What happens if we neglect that salvation? I'm not entirely sure. Many years ago, a Welsh pastor began a sermon this way. He looked out across his congregation and he said this, I'm going to ask you a question that I can't answer. I'm going to ask you a question that you can't answer. I'm going to ask you a question that the angels of heaven can't answer. I'm going to ask you a question that if the devils of hell were here, they can't answer. The question is this, quoting Hebrews 2 verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you're here, you're 11, 15, 19, 25, 85, and you do not have a relationship with the living God, and you say, I don't want that. I don't want to come to God through Jesus. How will you escape if you neglect such a great offer that God makes to give you forgiveness and eternal life? I don't know. I do know that the people that reject the invitation to follow Jesus will spend eternity in judgment for their sinfulness and their unrighteousness. I'm begging that that not be you. 
I'm praying for you as children, you as teenagers, you as adults in our congregation, that you would be the ones who would trust Jesus, come to God through Christ, and experience salvation. At this invitation, I'd love to talk to you about your faith in Jesus. I'd love nothing more than to tell you how you can put your faith in Jesus alone. If you're not comfortable coming forward at the invitation, or if you'd like to talk after the worship service, I'm available there too. It would be my honor to tell you how you can come to God through Christ. Stand with me, if you will. Our Father, we come to you in this moment. And we come to you knowing that we have the privilege to enter your presence because of Christ our Savior. So, Lord God, we don't come in our own goodness. We don't come in our own worship attendance. We don't come in the volume of the singing that we gave earlier. We come in Christ. And because we come through Christ, the one who died on the cross, we pray boldly and we pray in faith that you would do a work in our midst. Father, I pray that the couples in the room that need their marriages reconciled, I pray that you would bring husband or wife to repentance and bring that marriage into restoration and forgiveness. Father, I pray for the child in the room, the teenager, elementary school student, the young adult that does not know you. I pray, Lord, that this moment would be a moment of conviction and you would show them the truth of the gospel, show them the depth of their sin and their need to trust you alone as Savior and as Lord. Father, I pray for our neighbors, our, our, our grandchildren, those that aren't here that remain on our prayer list. Heavenly Father, your salvation exceeds time and space. Your, your work in their heart is not limited just to those who are present in this room. And I pray in this moment that you would convict them of their sin and show them their need for salvation and bring them to life. For Lord, you are a God who delights in saving those who are sinful. Lord, I pray that you'd raise up missionaries and witnesses to, the, go to go to the unreached peoples of the world. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would send us as a church to the nations, that they may hear the gospel and come to salvation and eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would intervene in the situations that are around, that are around us and bring about a, a sense of revival and a sense of awakening in our midst. Show us our need for you, Lord, as a church, as a community, and as a nation. We pray this, Lord God, because we know you delight to save. We know you're always existing and living to make intercession for us. And so, Lord, teach us to pray and trust you. Have your way in this worship service. For those who need to trust you, I pray that you'd bring them to salvation. For those who need to know you and bring their prayers to you, Lord, I pray that you give them comfort and encouragement and peace to come to you in prayer and surrender. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.